And uh, I think, uh, as we all know, this is a very exciting day every year. And uh, you know the, the traditional, the traditional Christians, I think, when they greeted one another on today, would have said uh, some the. Uh, especially the leaders at, at their worship would have said, the Lord is risen. And the people would have responded, the Lord is risen indeed. And uh, that's a, that is why we're here. You know, it's why we're here every Sunday. It's because the Lord is risen. The res- resurrection of Jesus Christ is so powerful that the, the first century uh, Jewish followers of Christ moved their Sabbath day. I mean, just let that soak in. Thousands of years of history that their Sabbath was Saturday. One event happened, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they moved it. Without explanation, question, it was assumed it was the right thing to do. We worship now, not on Saturday, but on the first day of the week when the Lord was resurrected. So today is a day of powerful um, truth that God has uh, raised His Son from the dead. I'm sorry. We'll do our best to try not to kill y'all with that uh, in the service either. Um, so, uh, take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter uh, 7. No, excuse me, 6. Carl, let me steal one of those from you. Today we're going to talk about illustrations. Illustrations in sermons. And um, you're talking about a subject where people are just uh, all over the map uh, on, it, on this illustration idea. And I just kind of want to bring some clarity on it. It's very practical, I think. Uh, one, one of the best books out there on illustration was written by Brian Chappell a few years back called Preach with Power, Using, the use, using Illustrations to Preach with Power. And uh, this is a great book if you want to read more about this. Dan Doriani also wrote a book that I like um, about uh, preaching and using outlines. But this, this one I think is the best. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 45. The text reads, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. <clears throat> While he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. This text is uh, uh, often preached in churches using an illustration. Um, and <clears throat> I've, uh, I've heard this text preached a lot. I won't say how many, but uh, many times. And... There's one sermon that sticks out in my mind over all the others. And it was delivered at uh, Willow Creek in Chicago, Illinois, or just outside of Chicago, in Chicagoland. And Bill Hybels, preaching this text, 
started out with a story about his son. When his son graduated from um, college, I think, or high school, I don't remember that detail, but uh, either high school or college, no, I think it was high school, he's 18 years old, he sailed, he set out to sail around the world. And uh, his, his goal was to go from, from, uh, Cal, uh, from California over and then continue his journey through uh, this, uh, this summer. <laughs> and he tells this whole magnificent story about the trouble that his son encountered on this trip. And, and it, was, it, was a, it was really a moving story. It was, it was gripping. It was so gripping that I did not even hear. The first time I listened to the sermon, I did not even hear him referencing the text. The story was so powerful, the personal story he told, the emotions he put in it as a father, and the concern he had for his son, and then how his son uh, got into several situations while he was out at sea and was uh, in danger of capsizing, and, and uh, just all this great high drama. And I listened to the, it was a 35-minute sermon, I listened to the whole thing, and, and literally when I got done, I was emotionally wrenched. And then I thought, what text did he preach? Have you ever sat through a sermon like that? Where when the sermon was over, you were emotionally spent, but it had nothing to do with the text. That's the problem with illustration. That's the problem with illustration is because we can work so hard to have such a powerful illustration of the text that we in turn do exactly what we're not trying to do, which is lose the text in the illustration. So that the people in the audience go home and all they can talk about over lunch is how it was amazing that Pastor Heibel's son survived his sale journey around the world. Nothing about Mark 6, verse 45 and following. Nothing about Jesus and his power to save and rescue. Nothing about Christ in his ability to give peace in the most overcoming and overwhelming of situations. No, nothing about the text, only the illustration. It happens more than we would like to admit, and, uh, and it happens in a lot of settings, and I'm not picking on him. That's just, that's just an obvious example. There are many uh, times that this has happened when I'm listening to sermons, and, and unfortunately there are times that I've done it in my own sermons. So, what is the purpose of an illustration? Well, the purpose of the illustration is to make the text clear to the listener. So, you know, the, the, it, again, we go back to this thing. If you, if you misuse illustration, you can take the listener's attention away from the text. How do we do that? Well, we use too much illustration. In this 35-minute sermon, I went back and listened to it several times. In this 35-minute sermon, Pastor Hybels illustrated 22 minutes of the sermon. 22 minutes out of a 35-minute sermon was spent telling the story about his son. Now, 13 minutes was left, and, and not even all of it was on the Scripture. Because he had two subsequent illustrations... They took up another seven minutes. So now he's illustrated for 29 minutes. That leaves him with six minutes on the text. Is it any wonder that when I left, I didn't remember the text? Didn't even know what he was talking about. 
So if you overuse illustration, if you go and sit in, in a sermon and hear nothing but illustrations, you're actually doing the opposite of what you desire to do. You're taking away from the text, you're turning their attention away from the Bible and putting it on whatever story or, or scenario you're using to illustrate. You can also distract by putting illustration in a bad location in your sermon. In other words, you're at a pinnacle point in the text. It, it's maybe the whole crux of your sermon. And you then turn to an illustration. Now you've worked hard to get them to this point in the text. You, you've worked hard to get the point that you're trying to make across. And now at the pinnacle, at the moment of understanding, you then turn them from it to your own story or historical narrative or some type of current event. And, and people, you know, as listeners, don't do well with this quick shift. They're, they're in the text, they're moving along, and all of a sudden you, you go over here and they never come back to the text. They miss the whole point. Um, and it becomes the emotional engagement. And what you, what you do is you unintentionally... So you can take a 35-minute sermon... And 30, 30 minutes of it can be text. But if the wrong five minutes is illustration, then you destroyed your whole purpose in having an illustration to begin with. An illustration is designed, should be designed, to simply help the listener better understand. Have a clearer understanding of what the text is saying. You can also do this by having a poor connection to your text. Now this is one that I've done probably the most, more than any of the other errors or mistakes in using illustrations. An illustration can be so good that a preacher falls in love with the illustration and it's going in the text, it's going in the sermon regardless, regardless of anything else. I mean, it can, it can have nothing to do really with the subject or very peripheral connection and it's just, it feels so good that I just got to get it in here. And if you find yourself doing that, in, and, and this is whether it's in the pulpit or at home with your children or in a witnessing situation where you're sharing the gospel with someone, if you feel that urge and that overwhelming desire to use a story, I have found it helpful to just drop the story altogether. If it, that story begins to dominate your thoughts, then it's probably not a good thing. Just set it to the side and forget it and go on with, with either no illustration or, or a better illustration, one that you're less in love with. Because what I find is I'm a sinful person. I know none of you are sinful this way. But as sinful, prideful people, we will unintentionally distract from God's Word by implementing our own creative design, and that distracts them from the powerful message of the, of, of the lesson we're trying to teach from the Word of God. So you can overuse illustration. You can use bad illustration placement. You can have poor connection to the text. Or it can have unacceptable content. Um, one of my favorite preachers to listen to is Mark Driscoll. And uh, he's a pastor at Mars Hill out in Seattle. Um, today, I mean, I, I, just, I just marvel at what God's doing in their ministry. Today... They had all 14 of their campuses is celebrating Easter kind of together. They're doing it uh, all as one church on separate campuses. And uh, they church four states now. They have churches planted in four states. It's just amazing. 
He's going to preach. He started at eight, he's going to start at 8 o'clock Pacific time preaching, and he's going to finish at 7.15 tonight. He's preaching at 8, at 9.30, at 11, at 4, at 5.15, and 7.15 uh, throughout the day. So, I mean, this, this, is guy, this, guy God is, this is a guy that God is using powerfully in our culture. One of the best things that's happened in the last five years in his life is he's moved away from the use of crude jokes and uh, unkept tongue in the pulpit. When I first started listening to him, it was not uncommon when he was getting passionate about his subject. Um, and it could be, and it usually was very powerful what he had to say. It was not uncommon for him to curse. It was not uncommon for him to tell a coarse joke, uh, something that was, that was edgy. And, uh, and while it may have played well with some of his audience that was young and male and in their mid-twenties, it destroyed his testimony among believers across the country. People began to call him the cursing preacher. Many of you may have been warned not to listen to him because he lacks sanctification. Well, I, I don't think that's true. I just think he is being sanctified. And I think it shows in his preaching. So be careful. And it doesn't have to be something that's far out there. You may say, I would never curse when I'm, when I'm teaching God's Word. Um, well, maybe not, but you can do the same thing by telling a joke that has a sexual connotation. You can do the same thing by um, overemphasizing, overemphasizing violence in an illustration. Uh, you can, there's a lot of ways that you can be in, inappropriate in a mixed setting. And it can happen, and, you, and the reason you need to be careful is it may not offend you. We're all at different levels spiritually. And I, I think of what Paul said in Romans 14 where, you know, he's talking about eating or not eating. Or he's talking about worshiping on one day or treating all days the same, and therefore you could take your Sabbath on any day of the week. It not no particular day, just any day. But what does he say? He says, the life is more than eating and drinking. So therefore you, as the elder Christian, the more mature, ought to be able to give up eating and drinking if it offends someone else. You, the older Christian, more mature Christian, should be able to give up worship on one day and allow somebody to worship any day of the week until their understanding comes along or yours comes along. I mean, in other words, don't pride yourself in being... Uh, spiritually mature and that means I can say this joke and it doesn't bother me as the older more mature we should give up our our uh, our rights and be thinking of the the least when you're when you're presenting God's word whether it's in your home setting uh, I think about with my children there's things that I won't say at family devotion that I might say to Robbie Joplin if we were having a conversation why because Hannah Grace, isn't, he, she's a tender age. She's not exactly ready for what I might discuss with Robbie or with David or with John. You know, she's just not ready for it. Same thing when you're in public. You're teaching a Sunday school class or you're teaching a sermon. It may be completely appropriate what you're talking about, but it may be uh, edgy to others. So really think about that. Because it can distract. Rather than making it more clear, it takes away from the text. So you can use good illustrations to capture the listener's attention. Just like you can misuse an illustration, you can use an illustration uh, in the right way and it really help your preaching and teaching. Um, I've written down here uh, some categories of good illustrations. And I've put them, in my opinion, from least used, should, what should be least used down to 
uh, most used. Uh, you can use historical, um, uh, historical illustrations. You know, I, I, I use them. There's nothing wrong with historical illustrations where you're talking about a past event that really fits the text you're teaching and gives great meaning to what you're saying. You know, and, and, and that's a good thing. But there's a problem with the historical illustrations. What, what, what would be the problem that we could run into? Yeah, exactly. You use a uh, an illustration from the 1600s, and the non-Christian sitting among you may very well say, Aha, I knew this Christianity stuff was for old fogies. I knew this stuff was out of date. There's nothing even more current than the 1600s for him to use to illustrate his point. Now that's completely off base, right? I mean, we could have used any number, but that just may have been a good uh, sound illustration for what we were trying to do. So it's not that you should stay completely away from historical analogy and illustration. It's just that be aware that you could lose your audience here. We're not very good students of history. How many of you love history? I mean, really love history. Okay, in a, te in, a, in a context like this, and I got about uh, less than a third of the hands were raised. Pe pe most people, I've, I've majored in history in my undergrad. I love history. I watch the History Channel. I read his, his, historical books. Um, I, several years ago, I read through my world history book from college again just because just I wanted to. Okay, I love it. Most people... <laughs> they don't love it. And so be careful to overuse this can lose your audience. But you can use it, yes. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and um, we'll throw in there, you know, if you're preaching to a multicultural audience, what kind of history do you hear most preachers in the United States using? American history. What perspective is American history taught from in the United States? Huh? The white man. And it's taught from the perspective that America is right. In all of her conflicts in world history, America has been on the side of justice and righteousness. How does that play for someone who, say, lives in West Africa? When they think of American history, do you think those people in West Africa think the United States has always been the beacon of righteousness? Or do you think they think, yeah, those are really good people. They came over to our lands and stole our people. They colonized our nations, our, our continent. They colonized it and took all the goods away from us. Spend any time, any amount of time, Jyoti can tell you, in another part of the world, and you get a whole new outlook on historical events. Okay? Um, so, which, just, just be aware of that. You know, you go do missions on an on a Indian reservation out west, talk about the Trail of Tears, how do you think that's going to play? Unless you're repenting of it. <laughs> it's not going to play well. You know, because on, from their perspective, that historical event. So just be careful with your use of history. Think through your audience. When you're illustrating, you want to think about who's going to be in my audience the best I can. 
and really try to put on another person's eye. Current events. I, this is great. Current events is wonderful. I will warn, though, what, how, most current event to- topics revolve around political things, whether they're overtly political or secondarily political. Current events like the national debt or uh, overtly in an election year, you'll hear illustrations of, of not just the mention, but whole illustrations about election politics. It's very dangerous. Very dangerous because you might not have a church full of Republicans. You might have both, hopefully you have both Democrats and Republicans in your congregation. Hopefully you have both those who lean towards the left and those who lean towards the right and those who are in the middle and those who don't care. Hopefully you've got all stripes of people gathering with you to worship. And if so, you can lose them in a current event because you're interpreting the event through your lens if you're not careful. Right? Tragedy strikes and uh, chaos breaks out and the federal government steps in and gives aid and supply and the preacher takes the opportunity to not uh, uh, see that as a good thing but rather to see that as bad use of federal funds. And now all of a sudden somebody whose uh, grandchild lives in New Orleans and lost their house and got help from FEMA, now they're not listening to the rest of your sermon. They're done with you. And done with your text. Be careful. Historical and current events are good, but they're not the best. I moved down the chain to personal illustration. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean me, but rather might be the context of Grace Fellowship. This is a great illustration tool to talk about your failures and your sins from the pulpit or from the Sunday school lectern can give you immediate authenticity with your audience. When you come to a text where the disciples don't exhibit faith and you tell a quick story about your lack of faith, people identify with that. People hook into that. Or when you come to a moment where the the people of God exhibited great faith in God and you build up the congregation you're preaching to or the class that you're teaching to their exhibition of great faith in, in some event that's happened in your church, It builds more authenticity into the text. Makes it exactly where I live. Okay? So, historical, current, and then personal. And finally, biblical illustration. The very best and safest form of illustration is to go into God's Word and use His Word to illustrate the text that you're teaching. Why would you... Let's talk about that. What What do you think? Of all of these... You know, any questions about this? Any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and it can get into, though it doesn't always, but it can get into the reformer's point where the Word of God is the interpreter of the Word of God. So I'm teaching a text in the Old Testament, and it's the text of uh, Jacob's dream or his vision of the Lord at the top of the ladder, and the angels are descending and ascending. Now, where am I going to go in the New Testament to talk about this? 
John chapter, John chapter 2, right? When Jesus calls Nathaniel, Nathaniel shows up and Jesus says, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel says, How do you know me? And he got, tells him, You're amazed at this? Wait until you see the angels ascending and descending. Where do you think he got that from? Jacob. The story of Jacob in Genesis. And he's telling him, the Lord at the top of that ladder was me. The man you're standing in the presence of is Yahweh. That's exactly what he's telling Nathaniel. There's no deceit and guile in you, but you're, you have no perception of the one you're coming to. I'm the Son of God. I am God, Yahweh, the covenant Lord of Israel. And so, when I'm teaching Genesis over there with Jacob, uh, I'd, be, I'd be ignorant of me not to go over and see how Jesus used that text and taught it in his context, right? And now, it's illustrated. It's, it's illuminating that text back in the Old Testament by looking at that New Testament text. Or when I'm in John chapter 10, and the Lord says, I am the good shepherd. What text in the Old Covenant Bible are we going to go to? To illustrate. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Right? I mean, if you don't do that, and you tell a story about the Lord protecting you, see, you can tell a historical event about how God protected the pilgrims when they came over and landed at Plymouth Rock. That's not bad. The Lord did protect them. You can tell a current event about how when, uh, when a tornado came through, there was, there was one room in the house left, and it was the family that had been begging and pleading God to save their life. That's, that's not a bad illustration. The Lord shepherded them. He watched over them. He protected them. It's a good thing. You can tell about a personal event of how the church was in some kind of uh, you know, pivotal moment, and the Lord protected by giving wisdom to the leaders to make a good decision. That's great. But if you're teaching John 10 and you don't go to Psalm 23 to illustrate John 10, why would, why would you do all of this and not go there? That's the question. Here's one thing I would tell you about using biblical illustration. Biblical illustration turns the eyes of the listener from you to Christ. From you and your faith to the surety of faith presented to us in the deposit of Scripture. So now, it can't be made relative, can it? Well, yeah, that's good for Carlton. He believes the Lord's protecting him. That's wonderful. But I don't, I'm not convicted that way. That's what happens with a personal illustration sometimes. Yeah, it worked for him, didn't work for me. But when we go to the text of the Bible, we remove all of that. Secondly, biblical illustration builds confidence of God's people in God's Word. And it's usability in our lives. It's, it's effectiveness in our life. When we illustrate with the Bible, we're building confidence in the Bible. Oh, this is practical. This does matter. It does relate to me and my situation. Thirdly, when we use biblical illustrations, we use biblical illustrations, we don't have to be concerned that the content will be offensive. Or if it is offensive... It's, it's the listener's fault, not ours, and not the Bible's, right? So I'm telling a funny story, and half the audience laughs, and half of the audience cringes. But when I go to the text of the Scripture and illustrate my passage that I'm preaching, they may all cringe, but they're cringing at the Word of God. That's a good thing. 
not a bad thing. They may be challenged, but they're not being challenged by my unkept tongue. They're being challenged by the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit will use that. So, biblical illustration is always the best. And I would finally say, if there is a biblical example, a clear biblical example illustration, which there almost always is, that needs to take prominent place in your sermon. Make it prominent, that illustration prominent, and, and drop down your stuff lower on the ladder. So that if you don't need something, you don't cut the biblical text, you cut your story about your son sailing around the world. Right? But now let me warn you about the use of biblical illustration. Sometimes the secondary passage you use to illustrate your passage is so powerful and wraps them so much that they no longer remember what you were teaching from your original text. Okay? Now, that, that's not the end of the world because they still got the Bible. That's better than them being riveted on your personal life or your personal story. They're riveted on the Bible. That's not a bad thing. But if you're trying to explain a text, you need that text to be clear, not swamped by a better or a different text, okay? So especially in difficult texts, those that are kind of hard to understand, you need to be careful how much you run to another text to explain it. Because if you do that, you just, just understand they may think your sermon's about that text over there. And the way you could kind of guard yourself against this is when you're done with your outline, your preaching outline, you've inserted your illustration, is go back and see how much time am I going to spend on this illustration from this text? And then how much time am I giving to my text that I'm actually teaching? Okay? So that's just the one safe guard I would give is be careful when you're illustrating uh, just like you over-illustrate with your personal story, you can over-illustrate with another text of the Bible and it loses your text. It gets swallowed. Okay? So just, just be careful. But again, if I've got to make a mistake, I'm much uh, more uh, accepting of the mistake of, hey, my, my text I was teaching kind of got swallowed up by that other text, and, but it's still God's Word. Rather than, my text got swallowed up with my story about my cat and dog fighting out in the front yard. That, that's not a good thing. That I've lost them, okay? All right, now, not only does the illustration uh, help give clear, but, but let's think about what is, a, what is good technique when I'm using illustration. An illustration usually comes in a form of a short story. And you've got to be a good storyteller. Part of being a sermon maker or a Sunday school teacher is being a good storyteller. If you're not a good storyteller, most of the time you're not, you don't play well in the pulpit. Okay? So, um, we need to be creative. Now, this is the side that uh, becomes controversial. We need to be creative. When we're using our story to, to, to be effective, we have to think uh, think creatively. We have to be vivid in our details. Using meaningful details and not trivial things or emphasizing trivial things, but being very purposeful in our selection of, the, of how we're telling the story and the details we're giving the congregation. We have to be redundant uh, with our terms. What are we trying to teach? If we're trying to teach the grace of God with a parenting analogy, then you better have grace prominent in your story about parenting. If not, people don't know why you're connecting or why you're using it. They just think, he must have had a good week as a parent, so he just wants to brag a little. Right? 
Or he must have had a terrible week, so now it's his personal confession time. He's, he's coming to tell us about all the things he failed at as a parent this week. But rather, if you bring the term of grace forward, if that's what you're trying to illustrate, grace-based parenting can be a great analogy if it's used effectively. And then finally, you have to be purposeful in ending your illustration. People need to know we've stopped illustrating and we're back into the text. The people know that I've, I'm not anymore talking about myself or my family or the historical event. We're back in our text for the morning. Okay? So, be purposeful when you bring it. You know, so, what, what is good technique with an illustration? That's why you should, whether you, you don't have to take it in the pulpit or to your teaching lectern or to the table when you're teaching your children, but really, to be effective with your illustration, you have to write the illustration out. Write it out completely. Give it a rest. Go away from it. Don't look at it for several hours, maybe a day. Come back and read it. If it doesn't make sense to you, it won't make sense to the people. If it doesn't connect to the text for you, you can guarantee the people in the pew will not know why you were telling that story. Okay? So, again... Uh, be, you know, to be effective is hard work here, uh, writing out this illustration. Illustrations are only one tool. They need to be clear and they need to be helpful. Illustrations need to appeal to the congregation. They need to appeal by being vulnerable. They need to, they need to you need to be open as you're teaching God's Word. Open and warm and inviting with your illustration. Not offensive, not turning people away, not infuriating people, not bringing in things, subjects that would distract them, but being warm and inviting. Like you're having a conversation uh, over the illustration. Things to stay away from, uh, tools to stay away from. Do not, um, I can't, this isn't written in the Bible. But it's written in the sermon building Bible. Do not buy a book of illustrations. Okay? Don't do it. 99% of those will be useless to you. Because that book was probably written 10, 20 years ago. 50, 100 years ago. Some of them 100 years ago. Guess what? How much connection does your people have with the generation that lived in the 1800s, for instance? You read this great illustration about farming techniques in the 1800s. That plays well in Anniston, Alabama today. Maybe for one or two people in the audience, but for everybody else, no. No idea. No clue. Now, if it's an illustration from you, this will show you the difference because you can use farming illustrations. It's just when you do that, they need to be your illustration of your life. If you're using a personal story, the difference is you're using a personal story. People connect to you, therefore the, the illustration's usable. If you're telling about the Mennonites back in the 1800s and their uh, hand-sown seeds and their uh, horse and buggy, people lost. Don't, don't have any connection with it, okay? And that's the way about 90% to 99% of those book illustrations are going to be. 
You'd be amazed. I've sat through a lot of seminary classes, and uh, in a lot of them I've heard all about um, oil lamps for light and outhouses and, uh, you know, horse and buggies as illustrations. I just imagine the lost guy in his heart shaking his head thinking, these people have, they must be from Mars. Anybody talking about a horse and buggy at this point has lost it. You'd be better off talking about the Jetsons than you had to talk about. You'd be, <laughs> you'd be better off to talk about anything other than that. Okay? So stay away from those. They're contrived. Also, stay away from using somebody else's story and making it yours. Um, people will, believe it or not, other people have read your chain email that you've now made your story. And they're wondering, how did he get that? How did, how did that happen? Be careful. No, no, you know, don't falsify. If you're going to use somebody else's story, make it their story. It's okay. But don't use it as your story. The, the other warning I would give on illustration is that on, on the point of illustrating, if you're sitting in your de- at your desk or wherever you study and prepare, if you say, this it doesn't work for me, don't use it. Don't use it. Just if the best advice is if it's distracting in any way to you, if, it's, if, it, if it doesn't connect well, again, be willing to die. Do away with that illustration. Okay? But don't, don't run from illustrations. Illustrations help us put clothes on the Bible. They, Jesus taught with illustration. Don't run from illustrations. Just because they're hard, just because they're fraught with danger, just because you can make mistakes... Listen, you might as well go on and be ready. If you're going to stand up and teach people every week, you're going to make mistakes. You know? You just got to be humble enough to admit it when you do. Don't run from illustrations. Some of my favorite pastors, they're afraid of illustration. And they're great preachers, and their sermons would be even more powerful if they illustrated well. Okay? Now I'll give you two, two guys that do illustration as well as anybody I know. It may surprise you. One, one of them is John MacArthur. He does illustration as well as anybody I've ever heard. Does anybody, not Aaron, you can't answer. Does anybody know where most of his illustrations come from? The Bible. He's one of the best biblical illustrators alive. He, he, he does it, it feels like it's, it's just instinctive to it because it is. Um, but he does it well. When he finishes that biblical illustration, I still know why he told that biblical illustration and how it connects to his text that he's teaching. I always leave it, it's not swamped. His text isn't, he does it well. Another of the best illustrators going is Chuck Colson. 
when Chuck Colson's teaching and he uses an illustration, it's almost always personal. It's almost always from his life. Something he failed at usually or something he did not do well. He is ultimately vulnerable with his audience. And it's why he so powerfully reached people for all these years. For all these years. Another great illustrator is Alistair Begg. You listen to Alistair Begg? He uses a lot of historical stuff. He does it very well. <laughs> you know, he does it very well. He's very talented. Chuck Swindoll. How many Chuck Swindoll people we got in here? People, yeah, I don't always agree with Chuck Swindoll's points when he's teaching. Okay? We, we don't have, always have the same theological perspective. But he's one of the best at being both personal and biblical and current event. He'll talk about current events in his sermon. It does it masterfully. When he's finished with it, I think, man, that's perfect. You know, it's exactly how it ought to be done. There's great people out there illustrating today in their sermons. And in one way you improve in being able to make good illustrations is listening to good preachers make good illustrations. Now, don't steal their illustration. Sometimes, maybe, give them credit for it. But, but they will train you. Listening, listen, if you want to be a good teacher of God's Word, if you want to be able to teach your children well, some of you say, I'm never teaching a Sunday school class. I'm never going to stand in a pulpit and preach. Are you going to teach your children? Well, I'm going to tell you, one of the best ways you're going to learn to teach your children from your home is listening to preaching. Good, sound, biblical, Christ-centered preaching will prepare you for discussions you will have with your children on long road trips, cutting the grass, out at the kitchen table, or just when they come home from school and all the world is falling apart. If you're not full from good teaching and good study on your own, but good teaching, you'll struggle with your children. So this is practically applicable to everybody. Okay, any, what questions might we have about illustration? He's asking about comedy and humor in sermons. Believe it or not, Spurgeon was very funny in the pulpit. He did a lot of uh, satire and a lot of uh, uh, jokes about the culture of his day and people in his day and uh, poke fun at himself publicly and those kind of things. So you can use humor, but, the, the, but, sometime, but here's the difference. When you use humor for the sake of humor, when your whole point in telling a joke is that everybody in the congregation laughs, it was wasted. It was use, useless. Whenever you, the, best, the best use of humor is usually uh, so well planned and so well done that people don't really feel like it was a joke. It's more satire. It's more, uh, you know, more natural humor. People laugh at something because it was just, it, it almost appears like it, was un, it, it needs to be unforced. And, and it all, it's, it's so well planned, people don't even think it's planned. So I think humor is appropriate if you're funny, naturally funny. Don't be forced. If, you're not, if, if that's not your normal personality and people don't see you that way normally and you get up there and do it, you sound like a bad stand-up comedian. Okay? Not many stand-up comedians make it in life. David sitting at, uh, at uh, a conference one time, he's our, one of our missionaries, was speaking at uh, John Piper's pastor's conference back in 2005. And he, when he was uh, presenting, everybody, there's this, there's this wave of laughter. 
He did exactly what you said. He, he, he said, we laugh, but, and then he turned it to a very serious point, and he had them. He had all of us. We were right in the palm of his hand. And it was so well done that only in reflection afterward did I realize that was planned. He did that on purpose. But it felt like in the moment, it was just he responded to our laughter. You know, but it, and again, he wasn't mad when like he pitched him fit about people laughing. He just turned it immediately. It was very well done, very well played. But very few people do humor well. I'm not joking. Most stand-up comedians are waiting tables or, or bagging groceries. They ain't making a living telling jokes. Hey, so preachers aren't either. Shouldn't. Um, one of the other things I think is to be careful about when you're illustrating changing the text. I'll give you a good example. I heard a sermon not long ago where the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, became the Lord is my CEO. I will have no need. Sounds very current, right? And then, and then the sermon moved on to talk about the, the, the need of good CEO, a perfect CEO. In these troubled financial times, we're in very current, very t in touch with today. The problem is shepherds and CEOs have nothing in common in the world's mind. Nothing. We think of CEOs. Matter of fact, I, my first thought was, so what board of directors does the Lord work for? I'd like to meet them because the CEO works for a board of directors. So see, it was very current, very modern, very in touch with today's current event, but it, it, it destroyed the text. It lost all meaning. Or unfortunately, that, not only did it lose its original meaning, but it was inserted a new meaning that didn't have anything to do with the point of the text. You'd be better off to tell what a shepherd was like in the, in the day of David and what his job was, what his responsibility was, and then move over to something very current which is your family, you as a father, are a shepherd to your little flock. And then to admit, unfortunately, so many of us have terrible fathers, grew up under hard, abusive dads. And I want to tell you, I, my heart goes out to you. But one thing we can be certain of, our Father in heaven is our shepherd, and he will never fail us. Now we've connected the text to something that everybody in our day understands. They got the historical background, and we've even challenged them that if your situation's awful, look to Christ. Much better than the Lord is my CEO, in my opinion. Okay? Illustration. Don't be afraid of it, but be good at it. Work hard at it when you, when you do it.